and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spirits Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Blake Hudson, A.L. O'Quinn Chair and Professor of Law at the University of Houston Law Center. We will discuss his article, Denying Disaster, a Modest Proposal for Transitioning from Climate Change Denial Culture in the Southeastern United States, which he co-authored with Evan Spencer and which was published in the University of Arkansas, a Little Rock Law Review. So welcome to the show, Blake. Thanks very much, Brian. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Yeah, no, the, the pleasure's all mine. This is a really kind of fun, interesting, provocative, and kind of, in some ways, terrifying article. As, as, as most things dealing with climate change are all Yeah, so I was wondering if you could start by kind of talking about the nature of, of the problem. Like, sort of, what is the Southeast, and why is it especially vulnerable to climate change? Well, um, you know, I'm from the South. I'm from the state of Alabama, and I've spent a lot of my time writing about natural resources and land use issues in the region because it's, uh, I grew up on some land in the area, and so it's, it's a passion of mine, but you know, one of the things that over my 11 years of writing legal scholarship that I've come to see is that it's hard to separate out the um, the, the actual what, what's going on with the environment from the culture and the, the political drivers, um, even even including things like the religious beliefs of, of people in a certain region. I've just I've come become more comfortable writing about those things because I think those are things that that really do impact um, views on how we treat the environment and, and what the, we think the responses should be to environmental problems and things like that. And so, you know, if you, if you look at some of the polling data, you know, you see that um, the southeastern U.S., you know, it's, it's, it's obviously a, a kind of a subtropical region. Um, it's got the most biodiversity of of uh, um, some of the most biodiverse regions of the United States, aside from maybe Hawaii, um, California, and things like that. And um, so it's 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 in a region where you know a recent report came out uh, that the Southeast would bear the brunt of climate change harms, including economic effects. And a lot of that just has is a simple relationship with temperature, right? It's it's a hot and humid area. Um, I was up late the other night, about one o'clock in the morning. And I walked outside and almost drowned in the air and I looked at the, the weather.com app and it was it, the heat index was, it was 94 degrees. It felt 94 degrees at 1 a.m. in the morning, you know? And, uh, so it's just a very, uh, you, you've got the, you're closer to the equator. You've got the, the Gulf, uh, things like that. And there's just a lot of humidity. And so, you know, it makes sense that it would be kind of on the forefront of, uh, climate change effects. And so it, it is interesting. Know that even though that's the case, it's also the region of the country where um, people are less likely to accept the the science um, or of climate change, or or even if they accept the science, it's it's a very uh, region that's very resistant to governmental controls or especially federal governmental controls. And so when you put all that together, it, it kind of creates this kind of scary situation, as you mentioned, where um, the people who might be harmed the most are just kind of most likely to deny the problem. So that's really the genesis for me kind of looking at this and what some of the drivers uh, were that I talk about in this paper for 
uh, this kind of culture of climate change denial in the Southeast. So one of the things you note in in the paper is that this sort of tendency to underestimate or even disregard the risks of climate change seems to be bipartisan in a lot of the Southeast in ways that it really isn't in different parts of of the country. And I wonder if you could talk about why that is. Sort of why is it that people in the Southeast tend to underestimate or disregard these risks, even though they seem like they ought to be especially salient to people in that area. Right. You know, that, that was one of the most shocking findings. Um, I, you know, Gail, uh, uh, Climate Change Communication Program, does these wonderful surveys, and you can really get lost on their website looking at all the different uh, questions that they ask about, you know, is global warming happening? Is it human caused? Are you worried about it? You know, all these different questions that they ask. And um, and I expected to get and, and you can break the, the polling down based upon uh, political identity, whether it's Democratic or Republican. And, you know, I expected to get in there and find that, you know, while we know generally overall Democrats tend to be more supportive of climate, uh, far more supportive of climate um, solutions than Republicans, I expected to, to look into the data and see the trends in the southeast shaping up the same as they do in the rest of the nation. And what I found was that. Republicans pretty much hold par for, for the course in the southeastern U.S. They, they don't really vary in their responses to those questions much more than any other areas of the country. In fact, the polling data shows that Republicans in the southeast are more likely to support uh, carbon uh, regulation than Republicans, say, in the west or the midwest. Um, Democrats, however, are a different story. Uh, the Democrats, and I think the, the numbers I throw out, are anywhere from 6 to 22% less likely than Democrats around the rest of the country to, um, uh, to buy into uh, these, the questions that, were, that Yale asks about climate change and whether it's a problem and whether we should do something about it, what should be done about it. And so that's what, we, what's what you're referring to when you say bipartisan. That there seems to be something cultural going on there that you know, even people who don't self-identify as conservatives or, or Republicans um, have this reticence. And some of that, you know, there, there are multiple ways you might be able to explain that. And some of that might be this notion of yellow dog Democrats, right? This, that uh, the parties have shifted over time and uh, you've kind of got what, what used to be uh, Democrats are kind of Republican now, as far as like the yellow dogs, uh, kind of George Wallace kind of approach to things. Um, uh, but, um, or Russell Long, I guess, in Georgia would be a better example, but um, so it might be education levels, you know, um, I, I'm not really, you know, sure what the empirical basis of that is, but, but I do know that there are some other factors um, that I talk about in the paper that I think drive uh, some of this, um, you know, I, I note uh, in the paper, um, you know, history, right, has, has an impact there, I mean, you know, the if you've read Colin Woodward's Eleven Americas, I talk about that a good bit, um, where he he has two different groups, Appalachia and the Deep South, which really try to have culturally kind of pushed up against um, federal overrides of local preference. Um, and you know, basically the way he frames it is these regions are very much about individualism, about personal sovereignty. Suspicion of outsiders uh, and resistance to federal control, taxes, and government regulation. And so, 
I think that there, there's a historical attribute to the southeastern U.S. that kind of transcends politics that uh, leads to some of this, this denial. Um, I think notions of private property uh, make a big difference. Um, you know, I grew up on some private property in uh, South Alabama, and, and my grandfather, who I love dearly, but he could be a little rough around the edges, he may or may not have pulled firearms on trespassers, you know, those, these are the stories that your family tells and, you know, you don't know how, how seriously to take them or not, but you know, I get it. I get the private property rights, you know, stay off my property. It, in some ways, maybe it goes back to that kind of Scotch-Irish Highlander mentality of, uh, you know, honor systems and things like that. Um, but, uh, you know, even things like, uh, you know, you have a lot of private forests in Maine and you have a lot of private forests in Alabama. And yet in Maine, people are much more willing to accept uh, payment for conservation easements uh, to place them on their property than you are in the South. It's just the conservation easements are, I talk about this in the paper, but they're utilized much less frequently in the South, um, largely because if you walk onto somebody's property in the South and say, hey, I'd like to pay you not to cut your timber, you know, you, you, you might get a, hey, get off my property <laughs> kind, of, kind of response that I don't know that you get in other parts of the country. Um, you know, I'll talk about the lax governmental regulation, uh, the forest management policies, just as one example, and just the general land use controls generally in the South are much more lax. Uh, it's just this notion of, you know what, we're not going to, we just don't want to regulate. And, and that's largely because there's such a high percentage of private property. Um, but there's some other factors playing in as well, culturally, because in the Northeast, you have a lot of private property too. Um, and then there's obviously, um, you know, religion and, and some of the divide in the religious world. I mean, you know, Catherine Hayhoe has been on the forefront of kind of evangelical scientists who try to promote change uh, with regard to, to climate change. And, uh, you know, and, and even she talks about how, you know, what Christians or the evangelicals are the people that have a mandate to be stewards of the resources. And, and yet they're they're less likely to kind of um, support uh, climate action, largely because of the political notion that if you, um, I mean, you're Democrat if you support environmental protection or climate change. And so I think that um, all these factors kind of, kind of, I think, come together to to create a, this culture of, uh, you know, either either we're going to deny that there's a problem or if there is a problem, don't tell us how to, how to address it. So, I mean, one of the things you know in, in the paper is that existing efforts to communicate the risks associated with climate change to people living in the Southeast seem to be relatively ineffective. I wonder why you think that is. You know, um, I, okay, so I thought a lot about this, and this is why this is the strangest paper I've ever written as far as my <laughs> my proposal, you know, like like calling for some group to put up a 30 second ad on TV <laughs> is because um, I've tried to think of everything else. Like, you know, of all the arguments that you can make, like, Hey, if, if you know, if you care about um, kind of personal responsibility and future generations, you know, we've got to address climate change or, or did you know you could protect your property values? If, if you, um, uh, if you'll, you'll buy into climate action, like all of these arguments, presuppose a belief in climate change, right? They, they, they presuppose a, a acceptance of the science of climate change. And, and you can't convince somebody that their property is going to be damaged by 
um, climate change and they should do something about it if they don't believe that that's a problem, right? I mean, so that's why I kept like, I kept thinking of all the different things you might be able to do. And that's why I came up with this associational messaging thing that, you know, that you've got to carve out a space where um, entities that these people tend to trust, you know, say, say Republicans in the South or even some Democrats in the South, they tend to trust certain entities. And if you can convey information to them that these entities care about climate change or taking action, therefore it can't be some grand government conspiracy to, you know, take your planes and your cars and and whatnot. Um, then then I think that's that's can be a more effective approach. And so I just think that um, a lot of the uh, um, options that are available to us are not effective because um, people are just unwilling to accept that they're the problem to begin with. Right, right. So, I mean, like, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about sort of where the messaging is currently coming from and how it currently reads and sort of how we might think about how to reorient that messaging and make it more effective. Right. Well, I mean, from my perspective, and again, this doesn't mean this is so, but from my perspective, because I'm, I'm around. I mean, I'm, I'm from uh, South Alabama. My, my family is is in that area. And, you know, um, Catherine Hayhoe has put out, um, well, there was a report recently that if kids talk to their parents more about climate change, then they're, they're more likely to listen and change their views, right? So, I mean, I've had that effect on some of my family, just like, look, I'm not, you know, um, you know, I'm not Al Gore, and, and I am, <laughs> am concerned about this. And, and that, that makes some inroads. But for the most part, what I see, at least in the national media and whatnot, and a lot of this goes back to why our country was so divided to begin with, with the hijacking of the polls of the, you know, mainstream media with the kind of hyper-partisanship. But I think most people, they either hear the Democratic uh, candidates for president talking about climate change, you know, and therefore they have this visceral response to it, or they hear Fox News criticizing the Democratic candidates talking about climate change, right? And that's that's what I wanted to highlight in this paper is that I don't think your average citizen knows that the U.S. military is super concerned about climate change and is asking for money to deal with it and that President Trump is signing bills that acknowledge climate change at the very same time that he's eviscerating and actually acting like climate change doesn't exist in other policies, you know? And I don't think the average citizen knows that NASCAR and Walmart and all these other organizations that I highlight in the in the paper are actually taking action. And so I think I think some of it is um, uh, the reason it's ineffective is because of the messenger. Um, you know, I've been concerned about uh, Casio Perez being the standard bearer for the Green New Deal because you know it, it, when you don't have your kind of more midstream moderate Democrats bearing the message, then it, it just further perpetuates this notion that, oh, that's just a far left-wing kind of agenda thing to, to care about. And I think we need to mainstream it. You know, I think we need to mainstream the conversation about who, who it is that's actually taking actions on climate change. You know, the insurance industry is a free market, right? They're, they're, they're out to make money. They're out to, uh, and they're not going to uh, fudge data that could be in their long-term uh, not not in their long-term interest and so they when they're saying that look <laughs> climate change is a problem and we're changing our insurance 
know, that's a signal from the free market and freedom and, you know, not a governmental entity that's telling you that climate change is a problem. And I just don't think most of the people that we would want to reach in the Southeast know that, which is why I make the policy suggestions that I do in the paper. So, I mean, what kind of policies do you think would be effective or what kinds of approaches do you think would be effective? I mean, where does this messaging need to come from in order to reach people, voters in in the Southeast? And who are they going to listen to and why? Well, in <laughs> You know, and I say policy, but that it's actually probably an imprecise term because it's it's more like you say an action by private entities. I, I you know, when I think about mass media and um, you know whether it's Netflix or the ads on YouTube or the ads on TV, you know, I mean, the the solution I came up with is to say, you know, we have all these political ads that take place um, during election season, and I would like some of these organizations to take some of their money. And, and just buy a 30-second spot on Fox News and don't make it like, you know, uh, uh, you know, a negative message. But just say, did you know the U.S. military is, has planned for contingencies for climate change in XYZ ways? And that President Trump has signed a bill to, you know, to, to, to give them money to combat climate change? Or did you know that these, these entities, these sports organizations are taking these steps? Or did you know these private industries, you know, Walmart? General Motors, um, all these other, uh, or Dow Chemical, uh, Monsanto, or whatever they are, you know, the, the insurance industry has taken X, Y, and Z steps. So it, it's it's a it almost sounds. I mean, I was hesitated to even put it, you know, put this out as, as scholarship, but I felt like um, I feel like this is the most effective means of. It kind of goes to Dan Kahan's uh, voucher theory of of sending someone in the community who everybody else in the community trusts to convey the message. It, it's in that same vein of, of what I call associational messaging to say that, you know, we know that Southerners uh, appreciate the military. We know they support the military. They're even disproportionately represented in the military compared to other regions of the country. And so if you can just give them the information while they're sitting there watching Fox News or, or some sports Super Bowl or whatever it is, give, just give them information about, you know, there, there are all these other entities out there that aren't part of some left-wing government conspiracy that are that are caring about this issue. That I think that puts a little chink in the armor a little bit to say, okay, well, I didn't realize the U.S. military cared about it. I didn't realize Walmart cared about it, or that the insurance companies care about it, or the NASCAR CEO actually mentioned protecting the climate in some of his statements about their sustainable policies. Um, so I, I guess some NGO that not necessarily Sierra Club, but, you know, there, I think this, this organization called Republican, which uh, Bill, Bobby, uh, Bill English, former um, congressman from South Carolina, um, I think that, that uh, an organization like that, that's like, look, we're buying into the, you know, the climate change problem. We, we think there ought to be market-based solutions to address it, but we think there's a problem. I think organizations like that should put some money up and and just do some, some TV ads just for information purposes, you know, and um, I've talked to my media uh, colleagues that, that there shouldn't be any kind of uh, restrictions on that. And I guess Fox News can decide whether to, to not run an ad or not based on its substance. But I don't think that's how they typically work as long as the price is right. And so <laughs> I, I just think this is just getting the information out about what entities are doing 
I think could could at least uh, disarm people who are predisposed to just not buy into the problem altogether. Um, and we've seen that with regard to Lindsey Graham recently, as you know, some of the things he's done over the last couple of years have shocked me. But you know, he has said we need to, you know, this is a problem. We can't keep our head in the sand. We've got to get out ahead of the solutions. And I just think having people, trusted people like that from those communities. Conveying that information and, and can it very, at the very least get them beyond the denial stage into a, okay, now we can argue about what to do about it. Right, right. So, I mean, one thing I couldn't help wondering reading your article was sort of why it is that the sort of trusted institutions and market actors aren't already making these kinds of pitches whether they're likely or sort of why they might or might not choose to make those kind of pitches and also why advocacy organizations aren't already making the same kinds of arguments that you're outlining. I mean, what are the factors sort of defining the conversation around climate change and climate policy in relation to the sort of political climate in the Southeast? You know, this, I have a sense about why the companies themselves aren't doing it. Um, and this, I don't want to sound uh, divisive or patronizing in this way, but I, I really think Walmart and, and NASCAR and Dow and Monsanto, I believe they know that they're, Board and their shareholders are sophisticated and concerned about climate change. And so they have these policies. They know it's good business. They know it's in their long-term interest. But I'm frankly not sure that, for example, NASCAR wants to get out and put commercials on TV talking about how much they care about climate change. Because I think that they know the politics are such that they, um, a large group of their constituency might <laughs> become less interested or boycott or whatever just because they you know what I mean? Like, it's almost like they want to have their cake and eat it, too. They want to have the policies in place to protect themselves and um, and have their shareholders um, guarded. But but they don't necessarily want the, the broader uh, populace to um, to know about it because that, that, you know, they're trying to sell their product to everybody across the spectrum, political spectrum. And I think the issue has become so politicized. Um, and in fact, I saw a recent poll that it is the most divisive issue in the country, climate change, as far as. The, the the degree to which people disagree depending on the party. Um, and so I, that's my guess as to why businesses aren't doing it. Advocacy groups, I think, um, I think are too, as I mentioned, kind of mentioned in the paper, I think they're too um, focused on just beating the other side, you know, and like uh, just, you know, getting the ex-politician elected, you know, just, uh, as opposed to thinking of more creative ways. I and mean, I've tried to send I've sent this article over to the Sierra Club, who um, there's a guy from this region in the Sierra Club that I know that has been working on communicating better uh, with constituencies so that it doesn't, they don't come across as just um, somebody coming in trying to browbeat people into thinking some certain way, but try to understand localities and place-based uh, kind of approaches. And so I'm, I'm hoping that some of these advocacy groups will will pick up on this this notion of, you know, it's not just about slandering the other candidate or getting your your person elected. 
Um, it's also can be these positive messaging campaigns that you ought to be funneling some resources into. And I think that they're just so focused right now on beating the other side that they're not they're not interested in, or they haven't thought of it or whatever. I mean, that's that's part of what I wanted this paper to do is kind of kick off a discussion about what are some ways that uh, some groups could come together. I even kind of half half jokingly say in the paper that you know you should get Al Gore or Sierra Club or something to to fund another organization called Republicans for, you know, climate action or something like that. And then let that be the little tagline at the end of the, the ad on TV that says, you know, funded by Republicans for climate action or something like that, you know, like, uh, what, you know, got to start working together. And you know, I don't mean to be just deceitful or sleight of hand, but, you know, there, there's ways that Republican and the Sierra Club could work together on some of these messaging campaigns as opposed to looking at each other as kind of, uh, adversaries in the political spectrum. Yeah, I, I mean, it it, it 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 strikes me that you know, sort of in the background of the paper is this observation that there's a kind of tone deafness to a lot of the messaging taking place in the sense that, like, you know true or false, right? A lot of the messaging around climate change comes off as a little tone deaf or inappropriate or kind of not pitched in a way that people find compelling uh, in a lot of of the South. And I wonder why that is. I mean, are there reasons why the advocacy organizations pushing these positions and trying to advocate in favor of a more progressive climate policy are unwilling to change their messaging? And what would it take for them to kind of think differently about how they talk to people? I think that they are just now um, realizing it. So maybe it's just a matter of having a little more time to, to kind of change their approach. But again, I, I know I've cited her a number of times, but Catherine Hayo um, has talked a lot about how Recent report, recent studies have demonstrated that telling people facts about climate change or, or any issue, I guess, maybe even like vaccines and other other issues with science, is is like one of the least effective ways to change their mind. You know, it's like you, it's counterintuitive. You think that conveying facts and data would help, but I think that that goes to what you're saying. That just say either say, oh come on, there's a problem. If you don't believe it, you're an idiot. Or okay, there's a problem. Let me convince you. Look, here's what the chart shows. And here's what this shows. You know, I, I just think those approaches have fallen on deaf ears, and I think they're just now realizing that through some of these studies that will demonstrate um, how difficult it is just to change somebody's mind based on just throwing a bunch of data and facts at them. So I think that the, the, the groups are primed now. Um, to change their approach. And I'm hoping that, that they'll think about the approach that I suggest. And um, I know the Yale uh, Climate Change Communications uh, website that I've, that I've highlighted has, has, has talked about more effective mechanisms. So I think that, um, I think the research is demonstrating that there are more effective ways to, to do this. And I'm hoping that the advocacy groups will, I don't know, put down their, their pride of, um, well, on principle, we ought to be able to argue facts and, and can change people's mind. And if we can't, then, you know, too tough for them. I mean, we, we just can't play these kinds of 
principal games um, in a time where we need to take action so quickly. You know, it's, we've got to do whatever it takes to get people on board, uh, even if we think in our heart of hearts that they should be convinced by data. We, you know, so I'm hoping that these organizations will start doing this in the near future. So, Blake, I mean, if there was one thing that an organization like, say, the Sierra Club could do, what do you think that would be? I mean, what would be the like the most effective single intervention to kind of communicate or message to uh, voters in the southeast? Oh, man. Um, I mean, again, I, th- there's a lot of different uh approaches I'm sure that I've, I've not thought about, but I, I think it would be great to have maybe even a longer infomercial, but like the, the Sierra Club kind of joined, partnered with one of these uh, groups, uh, these conservative groups that cares, that, that actually does acknowledge climate change, that uh, like Republican or something like that. And for them to put out uh, kind of a summary of what, what basically some of the things I've argued in my paper about what the U.S. military is doing, about what private corporations are doing. Just kind of own, own the fact that, look, we know there's a lot of misinformation out there, um, and, you know, but, but here's all the different groups that care about uh, climate change, and, and you know, we hope that you will, too. Uh, you know, I think that they, in this time of seeing uh, Sierra Club and different groups as the other, you know, the opposition, and there's precedent for this, so let me let me back up and say that there's a there's a group called um, it's called well it's a, a, a report that had been put out for a number of years called the Green Scissors Report, and so the groups are two of the groups involved with it are Friends of the Earth, right? <laughs> Which you can imagine, Friends of the Earth, and then Taxpayers for Common Sense. So one of them is like a hyper liberal group, one is a hyper conservative group, and they actually come together and say, look, here are all the wasteful subsidies that the taxpayers for common sense don't like, um, that actually harm the environment, which the Friends of the Earth don't like. And they come together, and it's been a very effective mechanism for helping people who otherwise might not care about the environment say, yeah, well, we ought to get rid of those subsidies because that's wasting my tax dollars, and it also benefits the environment. So that's kind of a bipartisan group that I think has been pretty effective at making some of those arguments. But I'd love to see the Sierra Club join hands with some conservative group, like a legitimately accepted conservative group that that thinks we should take action on climate change, even if they don't think it should be regulatory or whatever, maybe they think it should be market-based, and just kind of kind of uh, say, you know, we're partnering with this group uh, to put out a more positive message about all the, the ways in which uh, climate action, uh, the ways in which companies are addressing climate action or the military is addressing climate action, and also how it benefits the values that you care about. You know, always think about, like, what's more conservative than going off grid with a bunch of solar panels you know like what's what's more personally responsible than getting unhooked from the big public utility you know the monopoly that the government has its hands all in you know um so you know there's just a lot of messaging like that that i think if they could just sit down with the other side and agree to kind of talk about it together i think if you could make some kind of mass media uh messaging like that i think i think it could have an impact Right, right, and 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 you know, Blake. In, in closing, I, I I couldn't help but feel reading your paper that it was sort of like the discussion you were ha- you, you're presenting around climate change policy is sort of a a microcosm of a much bigger political messaging issue. 
and I, I wonder if like you could reflect briefly on sort of what this says about sort of communicating to voters in the Southeast and whether there might be ways to think about how to make those communications more effective more generally. Ooh, that's that's a tougher question when you're kind of broadening it out beyond just the climate change effect. I mean, I, it's so hard right now. I mean, if you, um, uh, there was a study done, uh, it was in Scientific American actually, and it showed the voting patterns um, of Congress and it showed red for, blue for Democrats. And for, for, from like 1940 or something until now, and, you know, for, for a number of years, it looked like mitosis of a cell, right? It looked like you saw a lot of blue going over to vote with the red and a lot of red going over to vote with the blue. And then about 1995, it just, it's like a cell dividing. The, the blue started going more into the blue side, the red started going blue. And then every since then, it's been just split, right? So it's like, it's like a visual representation of this um, partisanship that we have in the U.S. And if you think about it, the internet came up in 1995, the, um, you know, I mean, they around that time, uh, talking, you know, radio and, and CNN and Fox News and all those things, you know, so like, <laughs> that is such a, um, um, so much inertia there to overcome uh, kind of more broadly, but, you know, because I think people in the Southeast are, you know, a lot of the people I know, they're just, they're, they're on Breitbart or they're on some right-wing media, and you know, and they, they have nothing but disdain for the other side or whatever. And I just think that, uh, or kind of how they feel big cities are driving uh, the U.S.'s uh, politics as opposed to, and I think that's been a lot of the pushback with Trump. So, I mean, you know, I I feel like personally, I, I, I have a couple of websites that I've been running and I blog posts and stuff and I, I feel it's hard for me because I feel like I'm just ticking off everybody. Like one week I'll tick off my conservative friends and next week I'll tick off my liberal friends. And Cause I feel like I'm kind of right in the middle and the moderate. And I just, I don't know how to bring more moderation and, and kind of, uh, you know, the, the primary systems, there's all these institutional factors where the primary systems kind of causing the extremes of both parties to be the per- people that are put forth uh, in, the, in the system and stuff. And so I mean, there's so many institutional factors going to that. And I don't really know what to do about that <laughs> except to cut to have a call for more moderation and more people to drop their party affiliations and register as independents. And, and, uh, you know, that I don't really know. And I don't think that's just a Southeast thing. I think that's a, a Wisconsin thing, a Michigan thing, a Maine thing, you know, a Washington state thing, Oregon. I don't, I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I'm rambling here, but I, it's, it's a much t- more difficult question. I think once I, once I, expand out beyond the climate change because I feel like with the climate change issue there are these entities that conservatives or, or even uh, Democrats in the southeast uh, who may be more conservative than Democrats elsewhere um, tend to uh, support and, and that, that are taking climate action so I've kind of a data point there but as far as the bigger question I think it's institutional I think it's media I just think I think that's a harder question for me to answer. <laughs> Oh, for sure. Well, Blake, thanks so much. This has been a real pleasure. And, you know, I really hope that some organizations take up some of the suggestions you make in your paper, which frankly sound really quite sensible to me. Thank you, Brian. I really appreciate you taking the time and effort. I appreciate your podcast and uh, the the work you do to highlight um, scholarship around the country.
The heat wave continues throughout the city as record-breaking temperatures claimed six lives yesterday. Heat wave by Saul K. Bright and his Hollywoodians. Saul was born in Honolulu. He wrote a song called Hawaiian Scotsman, which made a star out of Bill Akamuhau. Saul K. Bright, Heat Wave, on Theme Time Radio Hour. Rose. People don't notice whether it's winter or summer when they're happy, so says Anton Chekhov. <laughs> 